Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 19, second part of the chapter from verses 16 through 30. We're going to talk about the rich young ruler and his legalism. Verse 16, just then someone came up and asked him, asked Jesus, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Notice the good that he must do. That tells us right off. That tips us off to his legalistic mentality. What must I do? Not what must I believe or what must I be? How do we know this is the rich young ruler? Because Matthew doesn't say so. Well, how do we know he's rich and how do we know he's young? We know he's young because four verses later in Matthew 19:20, it's Matthew refers to him as a young man, and then in Luke 18:23, the parallel passages, it calls him rich. So this, so this is the rich, the famous rich young ruler. And, of course, he is in a demographic that is one of the hardest to get saved. Young, knows it all, and rich. And, he have a pro and he's a ruler, which means he has power. So he has power, he has money, and he has youth. Some of the worst combinations for people who want to seek the kingdom. Now, what does it mean he's a ruler? Well, he could either be a synagogue ruler, a religious ruler, because all the rulers, all the synagogues had rulers. Or he could be a civil ruler, perhaps a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, we don't know. Let me read you a, a synoptic parallel to get a fuller view of this. Mark 10, verses 17 through 22. As he was setting out on a journey, that's Jesus, was getting ready to go somewhere, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. The reason that Jesus said that there's no one good but God is because He's trying to point out that uh, he himself is God. There's nobody on this earth that's good, that's good but God, and I am God. And that means that you aren't God, and you aren't good, and so you've got a problem. That's, that's a lead-in to what we're going to be talking about here. Verse 19 in Mark 10. You know the commandments, Jesus says to him. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He, the rich young ruler, said to him, Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he, the rich young ruler, was stunned at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Now in Mark, we see that Jesus was getting ready to take out on a journey, setting out, and all of a sudden a man ran up to him, the rich young ruler. So kind of caught Jesus as he was getting ready to go out on a teaching ministry. Notice that the rich young ruler was not a Sadducee because he's looking for eternal life, which means he's probably a Pharisee. Because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and eternal life, and the Sadducees did not. And he was a ruler, a legalist through and through, as I just mentioned, because he said, what good thing must I, what good thing, at least he says that in Matthew, not in Mark. In Mark, he just says, what must I do? And in Luke 18, Verse 18, he says, what must I do? In Matthew, he says, what good thing, what good must I do to have eternal life? So Matthew makes it clear he's a legalist. Chapter 19, verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? He, Jesus, said to him, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, when Jesus said there's only one who is good, as I previously mentioned, that means he's referring to himself and saying, hey, I'm God, and there's only one that's good, and that's God, and that's me, and I'm God, and you're not. And if you want to be good like me, you've got to keep the commandments. Now, why did Jesus tell him to keep the commandments? Because he knew the man was a legalist. And Jesus is getting ready to teach him that he can't keep the commandments. Nobody can keep the commandments. 
Now notice Jesus said, there is only one who is good. There is only one who is good. He didn't say there is only one who does good. There is only one who is good. There's a big difference between being and doing. If you want to be good like Jesus wants you to be good, you've got to be good, and then all your doing comes out of your being. But if you want to be get into the kingdom by doing good, you ain't going to do it. It's not going to, not going to happen. Now, Jesus said, keep the commandments. He knew that the man thought erroneously that he could keep the commandments, and Jesus was setting him up to show that he could not keep the commandments. And when he meant keep the commandments, he meant keeping them perfectly. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the idea of keeping the commandments is you just generally keep them with a heart attitude of trying to keep them, keeping them, knowing you can't be perfect, and then the sacrifices took care of all your unknown sins, your lack of perfection. But here, Jesus is talking about keeping them perfectly, I believe. Matthew here says, why do you ask me about what is good? Mark says, why do you call me good? So Mark is a little bit more explicit. Why do you call me good? Now, what did Jesus mean by good? Or was when he says, why do you call me good? Was he denying that he, Jesus, was himself good? That's obviously not correct, as the NIV Study Bible says. Was he showing anger that a ruler would call Jesus good? No, he's not doing that. He's trying to get the ruler away from legalism. He's trying to get the ruler to realize that the one he was addressing was God, as the NIV Study Bible says, and as I just previously mentioned. You're calling me good, yet only God is good, so therefore I am God. That's the logic of what he's saying. Now notice the commandments that Jesus mentions. He purposely confines himself to the second table of the law because those commandments were easier to keep. I mean, the rich young ruler, not going to be committing adultery, not going to be killing, murdering people, committing perjury in court and that kind of thing. So as we get down into the next verse, we'll see Jesus mention the easy commandments to keep, setting him up. Matthew 19, 18 through 19, which ones, the rich young ruler asked Jesus, which ones should I keep in order to to uh, inherit eternal life. Which ones? Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, or the or four, what, how many? One, two, three, four, five of the famous Ten Commandments listed in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Now, the love your neighbor as yourself is comes from Leviticus, and it's a very important verse, Leviticus 19.18. In the law, it says this, in Leviticus 19.18, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Now, notice the idea of love in the Old Testament is what you do or don't do to your neighbor. Don't take revenge against him. Don't bear a grudge against him. Love him. And, of course, Jesus quotes loving your neighbor as yourself as kind of as a capstone commandment encompassing all the other commandments. Because if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal his wife and commit adultery with her. You're not going to murder him. You're not going to steal from him and so forth. In fact, Paul in Romans 13 says this. Romans 13, 9. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments, all are summed up by this. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he's quoting Leviticus 19.18. So Leviticus 19.18 sort of sums up all the commandments. So Jesus has given him the full dose of the law. This is what you need to do if you're going to get saved. You've got to keep the law. And of course, the, the British Ruler thought he was keeping the law. And Jesus is getting ready to show, no, you're not keeping the law. Matthew 19:20. I have kept all these, the young man told Jesus, told him. What do I still lack? Now notice the man apparently is not secure in his legalism. Legalism never makes people secure because I don't care how good you are. 
how quote-unquote good you are and how many laws you keep. There's always some law that you're not keeping because we are terribly flawed people and you got to be a moron or a proud, arrogant jerk not to realize it. I know when I witness the people in China, they are raised on being good. They have all these conventional and social things they're supposed to do and not do and I say well now do you believe you're a sinner and I don't have any trouble they all admit they're a sinner real quick and I think that this man had a sense of his own sin because he realized he was lacking something he didn't have that peace and that security of inheriting eternal life now this particular legalist had many advantages he was rich he was young he had social status and power he was a ruler and he was pious and godly he was religious to boot and he still didn't have assurance of eternal life all those things will not make you secure in Christ. None of those things. Now, he was speaking sincerely. He was being honest. I'm lacking something. For him, keeping the law was a matter of external conformity, as the NIV Study Bible points out. But the rich young ruler had no concept of inner obedience to God. Matthew 19, verse 21. If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, when Jesus says perfect, the English is not good. This word perfect is always confusing in English. It can mean absolutely sinlessly perfect, or it can mean complete or mature. And Jesus is saying if you want to be complete and mature, it doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. It just means if you want to be a, a mature citizen of the kingdom of heaven, grown up. If you want to be mature, Jesus said to him, if you want to be complete, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings now. Jesus, before, when he listed all the commandments, you notice he didn't list do not covet as a commandment for the rich young ruler to keep. That might have been because it would have been a problem for the rich young ruler to, to say that he kept that commandment. What Jesus is trying to do is to give him the easy commandments to show that even though you're keeping the commandments, you, that's still not enough. You, you, you know, you, you're still not happy. You're going to have to do more. And so he didn't list covet. So then he comes up with a commandment that's not in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. It's not in the law of Christ in the New Testament. It was an incredibly difficult, impossible commandment to keep. Sell all your belongings and give to the poor. So Jesus was saving the hard commandment for last, for great dramatic effect. And I've just mentioned how hard that commandment was. It was neither required of all men in the law of Moses nor in the law of Christ, as John Gill in the NIV Study Bible point out. Jesus was making it hard on the ruler for a purpose, to get him to see that no one can keep the law. Now, as the NIV Study Bible points out, this verse can be applied toward those who have a problem with worshiping money. But you should never go around telling people you're supposed to give all your money away because the Bible says so. No, it does not. I mean, Abraham was a rich man. He didn't give away all his money. So, no. The idea is you don't. You, but if you're worshiping the money, if it's an idol, you should give it away. Keep, if anything offends you, cut it off from you before it keeps you from entering into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's, you know, one thing, but for the average person. In fact, if, you know, if the rich young man had a family and he gave all his money away and now he can't support his wife, now he can't support his children, he has to go on the public dole, well, what good is that going to do? So that don't miss the point of the instruction here. The point is not to worship money, not to necessarily give it all away. And John Gill points out that even keeping the, this new commandment that Jesus has given him would not be enough. 1 Corinthians 13.3 says this, And if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So even an external act of giving away all of his, of his money, even another external act of conformity to the law would gain the rich young ruler absolutely nothing. He's got to follow Jesus. Mark 10.21 is the parallel to what Jesus says here, if you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Sell all your belongings, you get treasure in heaven, and then come 
follow me. Now, Mark adds a detail here. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor. Jesus loved him as he gives him this impossible commandment. So Jesus is not trying to make life difficult for the rich young ruler. And I think he recognized the rich young ruler's honesty and frankness about his spiritual situation. Jesus loved. Now, to me, the man's not lovable. Now, he's not hateable. He's not like the rich guy in James, you know, that are oppressing the poor and all that kind of stuff. This guy wasn't oppressing the poor. He was a decent man. He had civic righteousness. He was good in the eyes of his neighbors. He was externally good. And Jesus loved him. He didn't, he didn't hate him by any, or he didn't treat him harshly by any means. Now, what Jesus is basically doing here is testing the young ruler to see if he has got what it takes to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus always did that. He tested Peter. He said, you want me to calm the storm, get out of the boat and walk on the water to me. Remember the Syrophoenician woman who wanted healing for her daughter? And they were outside of Israel, and Jesus said, I came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I can't heal your daughter because you're a Gentile. And she said, give me crumbs from the table. He was testing her. I know in John, the, the Gospel of John, in the account of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus looked at Philip as the 5,000 people were sitting out there with no food and at evening time with no place to buy food. And the, John explicitly says, Jesus, knowing what he was going to do and testing him, testing Philip, asked him, why don't you go feed these people, Philip? Jesus loved to do that. He loved to build people's faith. And he also, of course, loved to ask his disciples to follow him. When he first called a couple of, the, I think it's James, uh, James and John, the son of Zebedee, Matthew 4:19. Anyway, some, some of his disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you fish for people. That might have been Peter. I can't remember. Matthew 8:22. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bear their own dead. That was when the man didn't want to follow because he had to bury his, wait around for his father to die so he could take care of his family obligations. Jesus said, follow me. Matthew 9, 9. This is when Matthew himself, the author of our gospel here, was confronted. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he, Matthew, got up and followed him, Jesus. So that's what Jesus was looking for. He was looking for what it took to be a follower of Jesus. And a follower is just another word for a disciple. The rich young ruler, unfortunately, didn't have it. Now, the NIV study Bible says you, Jesus did not mean you could get to heaven by giving all your money away. He was not preaching asceticism. Rather, he was preaching discipleship and following him. And the ruler's wealth was an obstacle to that, and so the ruler's wealth needed to go. Again, don't overply this thing and go around and start telling people that got more money than you that they ought to give all their money away. That's foolishness, absolute foolishness. Matthew 19, verse 22. When the young man heard that command, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. He wanted his possessions more than eternal life. Now, you can only hope that he decided to follow Jesus later. He could have. Because it's understandable that such a hard command would not be jumped on at once. Now, the poor fishermen disciples, when they were told to follow Jesus, they immediately threw down their nets and followed Jesus. Was it because they were poor and had less to lose? I don't know. They gave away 100%. Jesus asked the rich young ruler to leave 100% behind, and he asked the disciples to leave 100% of what they had behind. So absolutely, it was a less of a sacrifice, but relatively, percentage-wise, the sacrifice was the same. So those disciples had done basically what the rich young ruler did. Now, I will say this, though. The poor people, poor fishermen, they gave it all away, but it was easier for them to go back to their profession and pick up where they left because 
after Jesus died, for example, that's what they did. They just go back and, and get started again. I don't, they didn't have a lot of capital title. They had boats, but they could always hire on with other fishermen. James and John had their father who had the fishing business. They could get back in the business okay. But the rich young ruler, if he gave all his money away, he would never get it back, not in this lifetime. So that probably sets us up for why it's harder for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven than poor people. So the rich young ruler here, he went away grieving. He had two sin problems. He loved his money too much and he was self-righteous. I keep the law. I keep the law. So here, ironically, the ruler was not blessed to be rich. I think of all these prosperity preachers, you know, Kenneth Copeland, the 16,000 square foot house of Steve Furtick of Elevation Church, the mansion of Benny Hinn. I don't know. I, you know, does that really sound like that jobs with the Bible to you? I'm just amused in hearing these people. See, this shows that Jesus is provides for me and you're living in a mansion come on riches that kind of riches easily to become a stumbling block and a block an obstruction for entrance into the kingdom of god or if these people are saved and i'm not saying they're not saved but i you know are they really getting close to god do they really hear god's voice perched up perched up there in their mansions i doubt it Matthew 19, verse 23 through 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, I wish I could hear a Creflo Dollar sermon on that. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know, if what Creflo Dollar is teaching, that everybody can get rich through the gospel, then that means that people are getting rich, and it's making it harder and harder and harder for them to enter in the kingdom of God. Well, you could say they're already in the kingdom of God, and that's true. But if they really, really, really want to understand the secrets of the kingdom, is that the way to do it? I remember talk, uh, reading some missionary literature about all these poor people that are going around all over India. And I know also, having been in China for a long time, there's a lot of Chinese people doing this too. They're poor, especially in the countryside, at least in China, is what I know about. In the countryside, they go out and they spread the gospel, and they don't have any money. I mean, they're dirt poor. They don't have anything to lose, and so they go. But now you talk about missionaries in America. This is what you got to worry about. The mission agency's got to raise money for insurance policies. Well, the poor guy in China or India, they don't worry about insurance policies because they don't have any insurance. They never had it before, so they don't need it now. And they go out and they spread the kingdom, whereas Western missionaries, they, they're great at building superstructure, organizations, bureaucracies, pension plans. But how many people get saved? That's the bottom line, so... This is a hard saying, and I tell you, Western Christians would be good to listen to it, in my humble opinion. Mark adds this detail to this verse here. Mark 10, verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, so it sounds like after the rich young ruler had left away, then Jesus looked around looking for his disciples because he had a teaching moment. He wanted to teach them about wealth and how hard it is to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't plan this, by the way. This this rich young ruler just came up to him all of a sudden and that gave Jesus an opportunity to teach. Now, he said, Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he said, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. But he didn't say it was impossible. Consider Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man and he provided the tomb for Jesus to be buried in. But, as a matter of fact, rich people are comparatively rare in the kingdom. There are some, I remember this guy, what was his name, Laterno. He made a fortune in earth-moving equipment, if I remember correctly. This was years ago. And he gave 90% of his income away and wrote some books about it. 90% of his income. So it's not impossible. Joseph Arimathea gave away a very expensive tomb for Jesus. Rich people need to be generous. 
They don't need to. They don't need to feel guilty about their riches. They need to be generous with their riches, and they need to realize that God gave them the riches, and it's not because of their goodness or their smarts or their inheritance or whatever reason. They don't. They don't need to be proud if they're if the riches are causing them to be proud. They need to give the riches away. It's hard not to trust in riches. You know, John says in First John two fifteen, "Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world." If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. And by golly, I've been around rich people before. I remember one time messing around with these uh, IPOs and these uh, investments. You know, everybody's trying to make a big hit. I was too. I didn't do it. Lost a lot of money, and then I realized, you know, these people out here—they're just. I, it just completely changes people. They get ate up, get get eaten up with the love for money. I remember talking to an Amway person one time. She said she was a Christian. I thought, oh, that's nice, a Christian. And then all of a sudden, I looked at the pupil of her, her eyes, and I realized she didn't have round pupils. Her pupils were in the shape of dollar signs, and that's all she could talk about because she was just eaten up with the love for money. I know there's a young Chinese convert of mine who lives in a different city now in America, and she put something on her social media, WeChat, and I didn't know what it was. It was a profile pic, and I, and I asked her, what is this? And it had something to do about getting rich. And she says, I want to make money. And she, you know, that's one thing about Chinese people speaking in their second language. Well, no, not even in their native language. They just, they just love money. They had, they, I remember in Shanghai saying a goddess, said, what's the name of this goddess? It's the goddess of wealth. She had two big gold bars at her feet, if I remember correctly. The whole thing's made out of gold. And people worshiping the goddess of wealth, and, they, and they're not ashamed of it. In America, we kind of hide it, you know. We're not going to openly say we love money, but in China, they don't have any bones about it. And young Chinese women, well, maybe not just young Chinese women, Chinese women in general, you scratch a Chinese woman, and I'll tell you what motivates her is money. Now, there's reasons for that. They've had poor social status. The feudal system treated them horribly, if you know anything about that. And they've they live in a society that's making a lot of money now, but they there's been revolutions before, and people have lost a lot of money before, and so they're insecure. So I understand that. I have a lot of sympathy for that. Let's put it that way. But they do love money. And I had to tell my Chinese convert, I said, you have got to understand, you can't love the love of money is the root of all evil. She never never heard that verse before. She went and looked it up. So so anyway, I was telling you. Riches will and 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 snare any Christian. I don't care how godly you are. You got to be careful about money. I'm not saying give it all away. I'm saying get it out of your heart. And of course, you do need to give some, a good bit of it away to the right people. Giving in the New Testament was to poor people and to itinerant ministers. Find a poor person, find itinerant ministries, and give to them. Now, a camel going through an eye of a needle is just as easy for a camel to do that as for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The lump on a camel, the hump, makes it really hard to get through that needle. Here's a little side note here. Some manuscripts read cable instead of camel. It's harder for a cable to go through and out of a needle. Needle That makes sense, but, but that was a common camel proverb in the East. That's probably what it was. It's just better. It's better. It makes the analogy better. I, the, excuse me, the metaphor better. Some people, as a third option, say that the eye refers to a small aperture in a wall, and a loaded camel could not make it through that small aperture of the eye of the needle. The small aperture in the wall, a camel couldn't make it through. I've heard some people refute that. I, I, I don't know. That's, that's for some PhDs and New Testament if you want to get into that. Matthew 19, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, And who can be saved? Now, they were astonished because they were thinking there would be many rich people in the coming Messianic kingdom because a kingdom implies riches and power, as John Gill points out. Now, 
who can be saved if rich people aren't coming into the kingdom, they're thinking, and rich people are most therefore likely to be opposed to the kingdom of Christ, then what chance would poor ignorant fishermen like these disciples have in the kingdom? They're going to be nothing burgers. So that was the first reason they were surprised, is they were thinking the typical Jewish way about messianic kingdoms. And then when they said, who can be saved, that sounds like the disciples thought that everybody was rich. Now, that is a problem, because if Jesus had said only the rich are not going to come in, and then the disciples said, well, we're poor, we'll make it, the rich won't, uh, and most people are poor, so therefore there's only going to be a few people excluded because only a few people are rich. But that's not what Peter says. It says, who can be saved? Like, nobody can be saved. Sounds like he thought everybody was rich, as Adam Clark points out. Well, here's the option to solve that little problem. Adam Clark says they might have attached a different meaning to the word rich. They were thinking that rich merely meant someone who wasn't in penury, starving to death. In other words, that would include the working class, the middle class, the moderate religion, the extremely rich. Include everybody except people that are in abject poverty. I don't know. Here's another option. They could have been thinking that the poor in the kingdom will be oppressed by the rich. When they say, when they say who can be saved, what it meant was we're poor, we'll be in the kingdom, but the rich are going to oppress us and wipe us out. I think that's probably what they meant, although that's not generally the way people take it. But I think that's probably what the disciples were, were saying when they, when they asked that. But Jesus, in verse 26, in chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, With men this is impossible. What's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? For a camel to go through the eye of a needle. With men this is impossible. With God all things are possible. Now here Jesus says, look, it's possible for rich people to get saved. Joseph of Arimathea. Mr. Letourneau, rich people who can't say, poor people oppressed by rich people who are unbelievers, poor people who are oppressed by unbelieving rich people, they can be saved. So there's two options as to what this impossible thing is, rich people getting saved or poor people being oppressed by rich people. Not really clear what Jesus meant. The typical interpretation of this is that is referring to rich people getting saved, who can be saved, rich people hard to get saved, it's impossible for, for rich people to get saved on their own, but with God, it's possible for a rich person to get saved. God can move on a rich person to abandon his attachment, like Gollum, to his riches. But that in the Lord of the Rings, Gollum, that's the best scene in the book and in the movie, when he starts thinking about it, my precious, looking at his gold coins. And what it did to him, it turned him inside out. It, it evacuated him of all humanity or whatever he was. He, I guess he wasn't a human. He wasn't human by the time the love of money sucked him dry. Matthew 19, verse 27, Then Peter responded to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you, so what will there be for us? Now there's two options on how we can interpret Peter's attitude here. Is he being proud? Look, we left everything, which he did. He left all of his fishing business. Is he being proud about it and say, look, we're going to the kingdom, now doggone it. The rich young ruler didn't make it, but we're going to make it because we left everything. Or could he be a little bit defensive and worried? Ooh, so, you know, it's hard for people to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus, just to make sure you understand, we did leave everything, didn't we? So what will there be for us? We left everything. And anyway, either he's showing a lack of confidence in giving up everything, or... He's being a little bit proud about it, not really sure, but Jesus answers him this way in Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, meaning the disciples, Peter was speaking for the disciples, Jesus said to them, I assure you, in the Messianic age, 
When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now this little verse has some theological implications, so let's look at it closely. First of all, the translation of Messianic Age. That's the Holman Christian Study Bible, Messianic Age. The NIV has, in the renewal of all things. The KGV has, in the regeneration. And the ESV, English Standard Version, has in the New World. So the translations are all over the place. And there's also a problem in where you put the comma. You can translate it this way. I assure you, in the Messianic in the Messianic age, you who have followed me, you who have followed me in the Messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne in glory, in other words, then you will sit on the twelve thrones. So then the disciples will be sitting on the twelve thrones at the very end of the world. Or it could be, in the Messianic age, you will sit on the twelve thrones. You who have followed me will sit on the twelve thrones. So there's a question of when the sitting on the thrones occurs. Does it occur at the very end of the world in glory, or does it refer to the church age? Now, Adam Clark vehemently states that it's referring to the, the ruling in the, the 12 tri over the twelve tribes of Israel is referring to the end of time. Here's what he says. The regeneration is thus referred to the time when Jesus shall sit on the throne of his glory and not to the time of following him, which is utterly improper. However, John Gill, as another option, says that Jesus has already sat on his glorious throne when he ascended, and therefore is talking about when you followed me. I assure you, in the Messianic age... When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, he's already sitting on his glorious throne because the Messianic Age is here because the Son of Man was ascending, ascended to heaven, and the Messianic Age has started in the time of the church. You who have followed me in this time now, pre-Pentecost, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones in the Messianic Age, in the church age. That's John Gill's view. That's my view, too. Hebrews 8.1. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. If you sit down at the right hand of the king, that means you're ruling then. That's the right hand, the hand of power. So Jesus has already sat down in heaven. He's already sat down on his glorious throne according to Hebrews 8.1. And so when he says in this verse, verse 28 in Matthew 19, when he says when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, that means in the church age. The translation of the Greek depends on how you punctuate it, which I won't get into here, but it, it can go either way. The translation is not going to do it for you. But if you look at Hebrews 8, you know Jesus is sitting on his throne already. And so that means that those disciples are going to be ruling during the church age. Now, the problem is, is they ruled the church. They didn't rule the 12 tribes of Israel. As you see the theological implications here, if it's at the end of time, that means there might be a reestablished Jewish millennium for the disciples to rule over. And that sounds a lot like dispensationalism, and as maybe you know by now, I ain't a dispensationalist. I think dispensationalism is one of the most unfortunate things that's ever hit the church. So what does it mean? Well, judging the 12 tribes of Israel would have to be symbolic of the church. Let's look at Hebrews 8.8. 8. But finding fault with his people, he, God, says, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, we all know the new covenant is the new covenant with the church. But Hebrews, quoting Jeremiah 31, says that the new covenant is with the house of Israel. Why? Because Jeremiah can only think in terms of Israel, the old Israel. He didn't know what the new Israel was going to be like, the new church. And, and the author of Hebrews did the same thing. Quoted Jeremiah straight. But he, he, he said the new covenant was with the house of Israel. And we know the new covenant is with the church. So the house of Israel is symbolic of the church. 
Now this makes sense because the disciples, they knew Israel, but they didn't know what the church was going to be like. So it was logical that Jesus would use the old term to describe the fulfillment. He said, look, you gave up everything. You are poor and powerless, but hey, you're going to be in charge of the kingdom of God. The 12 there is symbolic, by the way. The 12 tribes, 12 apostles. If you recall in Revelation that in Revelation chapter 21, the New Jerusalem, which is a symbol of the church, it had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The name of the 12 tribes of Israel were inscribed on the gates. So there's 12 tribes on the gates. And then in verse 14, two verses later in Revelation 21, the city wall had 12 foundations. And the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles were on the foundations. So the apostles were the foundation of the new church of Jesus, symbolized by the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So basically what he's saying is you're going to have authority in the new early church that when it gets started, which they did. And, they, and you know, they were looking for big places in the kingdom of God, and they got authority in their early church, and as a result, they got killed before their time, all except John. And of course, this does exclude Judas also, because the 12 here, that's symbolic. 12, 12, 12, and 12. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, and besides, Judas was replaced with Matthias anyways. So he's not talking about you 12 individually. He's talking about 12 apostles as representing the foundations of the new covenant church. Now, Jesus here acknowledges what Peter said. Peter said, we've given up everything. Jesus didn't dispute him on that. He said, yes, you know, he basically is saying, yes, you have. I assure you, you're going to get it. You have followed me. You follow me, and you're going to get rewarded for it. Not as a big shot in the Messianic kingdom, but you are going to be rewarded for it. This idea of 12, which I said was a, a metaphor, John Gill agrees with that. He says it's a, met a metaphorical phrase setting forth the honor, dignity, and authority of their office and ministry. A fancy way of saying what I just said. Matthew 19, verse 29, Jesus continues to teach the apostles, and everyone who has left Houses, brothers or sisters, father or mother, children or fields, because of my name, will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. He's still on this theme started by the rich young ruler of giving things away. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to leave something behind. It might be, i tell you what I had to leave behind. It was a girl named Kathy that I was bound and determined to marry. And I said, God, please don't take this away. I can't give it up. Four years of wrestling sweating. I mean, I don't know how long the rich young ruler wrestled before he gave up all his money, but boy, I sweated blood. But I always said, but God, if you want me to give her up, do it. Let, take her away. And he did. And it's a good thing because I would have been divorced after a month and was missed marrying my excellent wife of over 40 years now. I would have done a disastrous thing. But I know how hard it is to leave something that's your idol, like Gollum, and giving up that coin or whatever it was that Gollum couldn't let go of, it's real hard to let go of something that you worship. But you better let it go. Notice here, houses, that's hard to let a house go. How about your brother or sister? No, don't go after that stupid Jesus stuff. That stuff is stupid. You're going to give up your whole career if you do that. Your family members, your father, your mother. I've had an atheist father who sneered at my Christianity all my life. I got a brother who's basically has nothing to do with Christianity, doesn't want to have a thing to do with it. I got one son who's turned his back on the faith. And I'm going to tell you, it hurts, and it's not easy. But Jesus said, you leave all of that because of his name, you're going to receive a hundred times more of what you gave up. Now, the hundred is not meant to be literal. It doesn't mean you give away one house, you get a hundred times back. Another parallel passage that says you'll get it back in this life and eternal life. Where's the parallel here? Mm, I don't have the parallel in front of me. 
Oh, yes, here it is, Mark 10, verse 29, 30. This person will, who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecution and eternal life in the age to come. So you're going to get rewarded in this life and the next life. But don't take it literally, say, I'm going to get a hundred houses. Are you going to get a hundred brothers back? Are you going to get a hundred sisters that reject you? Is God going to give you a hundred more sisters? No, that's absurd. You're going to get eternal life and you're going to get blessed in this life. That's what it takes to give eternal life. You've got to give up the things of the world. Love not the world, John said. Notice also the parallel passage that Mark said that as well as that hundredfold return, you also get persecutions. And that's probably related to the persecutions from mothers and brothers and sisters and loved ones and such. So you get good things and you get bad things. Matthew 19 verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now I take the first here as Jesus is referring back to the rich young ruler and say, yeah, he's young, he's got money, and he's got social position and political power or religious power. He's first in this life, but in the next life he's going to be last because he gave up eternal life. On the other hand, people who are nobodies in this world, like you poor ignorant fishermen who've given up everything, you're going to be first in the kingdom of God, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, i.e. over the church. That phrase, many who are first will be last and the last first, is used several times in, in the scriptures and other stories and other gospel stories that Jesus gave. So it was something obviously on his mind a good bit. Now Jesus, let me give you another option about who the first that Jesus was referring to. It could have been the rich young ruler or it could have been the Sadducees and the Pharisees in, Sadducees and Pharisees in general because obviously they were the big shots and they were in there was no possibility they were going to get into the kingdom with their attitudes. All they were doing was storing up judgment for themselves. Here's an example of somebody who was first and ended up last, Judas. He was one of the 12 apostles of the Son of God, and look what he did. Ended up in hell because he betrayed Jesus. What an idiot! Here's an example of those who were last but ended up first. All the apostles but Judas. They gave up everything. and We're still talking about them 2,000 years later. Now, here's another option about who Jesus was talking about, and I don't believe it's true, but I'm just giving it to you as an option. Many who are first will be last. It could be that Jesus is saying, look, Peter, you're bragging about giving up everything, and you're asking about what you're going to get in the kingdom. Don't brag, because if you want to be first, you're going to be last. If you want to be, if, and if you want to be first, you need to be last. Quit bragging about what you're going to get. This is the NIV Study Bible's idea. I don't think that Peter was really doing that, in my humble opinion. I think he was just curious. I gave everything up. I'm, you know, what's going to happen with me? Or maybe he was thinking about that messianic kingdom, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, Jesus didn't explicitly rebuke him. He might have implicitly rebuked him here in verse 30 by saying, Hey, Peter, many who were first will be last, and the last first, so you better be careful. I don't know. But at any rate, we have finished with Matthew chapter 19. We'll take up Matthew chapter 20 next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.